Thank you so very much to all of you who have ministered to us today. I wish that we had time to just do all of that over again. I'd like to do the scripture reading again and all the music again. Very, very grateful for that. I'd like to ask you this morning to open your Bibles together to the New Testament book of Romans and the fifth chapter of that book. We are continuing today a series that is based upon one of the last admonitions that is given to Christian people in the New Testament. And that admonition is found toward the end of the little book of Jude, and we are referred to there, those of us who know the Lord, as the Beloved. It's referring, of course, to the love of God for us. We are the Beloved. And when Jude writes that, he, of course, has that same feeling toward the believers whom he's addressing, that they are his beloved. Beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith. Now that is what we're doing today. We're building ourselves up on our most holy faith. That has been going on while we've been reading Scripture, while we've been singing scriptural truth, while we have been praying to the God of heaven, and now as we look into His Word for the preaching of it, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, and I trust that we have done that this morning, praying in the Holy Spirit. These things having been done, now here's the admonition that's the basis for our Lord's Day morning series right now. Keep yourselves in the love of God. That comes through building ourselves up on our most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit. The point, the objective is keep yourselves in the love of God. Keep that perspective that God loves you, that God loves the church of Jesus Christ. And with that perspective, wait anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. And in keeping then with that series, we are coming now, having been now for several months in Old Testament passages designed to help us keep ourselves in the love of God, we come now to a New Testament passage that is paramount regarding this in the fifth chapter of the book of Romans. Now, before we read together, I want to try to usher us into this reading with the right spirit and viewpoint. We have three hymns in our hymn book written by a 19th century English minister named Henry Francis Light. All three of those hymns are well known to us and precious to us. The first is, Abide with Me. 
The second is, Jesus, I, my cross, have taken all to leave and follow Thee. And the third is one that we sing frequently, Praise my soul, the King of heaven. All three of those were authored by this same English clergyman. Light was a minister for some time before he was actually converted. He was a lost English clergyman. He had a friend in a close parish, and this friend, who also was a minister, grew very ill and finally was on his deathbed. Henry Light went to visit him, and during that period of time, the minister confessed to him that he had come to a great assurance of his own security in Christ once he passed out of this life. And he told Light that he had come to the place where he now felt that both he and Henry Francis Light had been mistaken about the way they'd been reading the Bible. He said that he had come to the point now where he realized that the great mistake is that they had not been taking Paul's epistles plainly and in their literal sense. Now, I don't know, it's not recorded exactly how Light had been taking things, but certainly with somewhat of a poet's eye, and perhaps just taken with the majesty of language in Scripture, but not really rooting himself in true persuasion that these things that are said particularly by the Apostle Paul, were meant by God to be taken in the most literal sense. We have in the panel of our worship guide today a portion of a message by the late Professor John Murray regarding the infallibility of Scripture. On our church sign, I have the words this week of Matthew 5.18 that not a single letter or even a stroke, a distinguishing stroke between letters, not a letter or a stroke will pass from God's law until it has all been fulfilled. We begin in our review of our catechism cards to take up the question of how we can know and glorify God. And the answer to that finally, ultimately, is it's only through the sacred scriptures. I want to urge us as we read now these words then in Romans chapter 5 to take them in their most plain and literal sense and take them to your heart. Let's read beginning in verse 1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, is that you? Have you placed your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, which is the only way God says in His Word that any of us will ever stand before him and hear him pronounce that we are righteous in his sight. If you have done that, you are justified right now by that faith in Christ. That being the case, look at the end of verse 1. Take this in the most literal sense. We have peace with God. 
through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through whom also, that is through Christ also, we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand right now this morning. We're informed in Scripture that God's throne is a throne of grace. And this verse is speaking of us now as having been brought to God by faith so that we have a literal standing in grace before God. Take those words in the most literal sense this morning. And we exult in our hope, our confident expectation of the glory of God. The glory of God in every respect, including it's finally being manifested in the full redemption of us and our bodies. And not only this, verse 3, but being justified by faith, we can also exalt not just in that confident expectation of what is to come in the future, but right now in the lowest, most desperate, painful circumstances of our earthly lives. Right now in our tribulations we exalt. Take that in the most literal sense. How can that be? Because we know something. And we know it because the Word of God teaches it. We would be mistaken not to take this in the most plain and literal sense. We know, we are taught in the Word of God that that earthly tribulation brings something very precious to our lives. It brings perseverance. Perseverance is the ability to persist in a certain course despite all discouragement. Tribulation works that in the children of God. And that perseverance, verse 4, works proven character. To where we realize, we have the proof of it now. Our experience demonstrates it. That we're different. That we're not what we were. That the work of God in our lives is genuine. Look at how we persist in the things that break down and break apart other people who are not justified by faith in Christ. I am a child of God. Look at the evidence of it in my persistence, proven character. And that proven character gives us, the end of verse 4, hope, confident expectation. And verse 5, that confident expectation does not disappoint. Or the idea is it will not be disappointed. What is it that gives us that kind of confidence that will never be disappointed? Now keep reading. That confidence is because of something going on in our hearts. And it's not our own work. It's supernatural. 
the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit that was given to us. And there is this that is the basis for the Holy Spirit doing that in our hearts. Verse 6, while we were still helpless, that is without any possibility in ourselves of bringing about any of this, at the right time, that is the right time in the eternal purpose of God, Christ died for people like us. He died for the ungodly. Did you know verse 7 that one would hardly die for a righteous man? Though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Now, this is the first time, folks, in the book of Romans that the wonderful matter of the love of God has been mentioned. Four full chapters of teaching, and finally, it is said that God loves us. It is said here in that fifth verse, And it's said here in the 8th verse, God demonstrates His own love toward us. What is it that is said to us about the love of God? We're told to keep ourselves in the love of God, keep that perspective on God. Now we're told here in the first of Paul's letters in our New Testament that God does truly love us. What is said to us about that? Two things, let's note them. In verse 5, we're told, first of all, that God's love has been poured out within our hearts. Now, what it's talking about here is God's love for us, not our love for God. We're told that the Spirit of God, as it were, pours out in great effusion the impression on our senses gives to us, I can put it in these words, this deep, confident sensation or impression. It's subjective. It's a felt thing. That I am loved by God. The second thing that is said is in verse 8, and that is that there is an event that puts that beyond all question. If I was to think to myself on occasion that this is something that I'm simply stirring in my own soul, or I'm talking myself into believing this again today, what we're told here is that that subjective feeling internally is based upon the most sure possible evidence externally. And that external evidence is this, verse 8, God has demonstrated it 
It's as clear as the sun is shining this morning. It was a foggy day when we came. It often feels foggy in life, but there is a fact that can never be changed by the dismal character of a single day, and that is the shining, the demonstration of the love of God for us when Christ died on the cross. Those are the two things that we're told in this passage regarding the love of God. And those two in combination are what Paul says in verse 5, gives to us great confident expectation. Expectation about all that has been said here, the totality of our relationship to God and what is ours in the future. These two things together, the internal, effusive impression of the love of God for me individually, based upon the unalterable, inarguable fact demonstrated at Calvary that Christ died for people like me, those two things together put the love of God for me beyond question. It is absolutely certain this morning that God loves me. It is beyond dispute that God loves you. And so in keeping with our series this morning, I want to call our attention to this. I want to, as best I can, exposit this. Lord willing, we'll continue in this passage next Lord's Day. But may the Lord help us to draw from this wonderful passage a broader, deeper, more confident perspective to enable us to keep ourselves in the love of God. First of all, I want to call your attention to the 8th verse where we're told of this objective demonstration of God's love and that it is in the death of Jesus Christ. Now, folks, at this point in the book of Romans, the Apostle Paul is assuming our understanding of what is meant by Christ's death for us. And the reason he's assuming that understanding is because he has explained it previously in the book. So he's not going back over any further explanation of the magnificence and the full meaning of Christ dying for me. The primary explanation is in the third chapter, and it's in a single paragraph there. And I want to ask you to turn to that with me, please. And it's in chapter 3, and it begins with verse 21. And the heart of that explanation of what Christ's death on the cross meant, the heart of it is in the 25th verse. So I want to go right to verse 21. This is what Paul is assuming now that we know when we come to chapter 5. He's assuming that we know and understand this verse 25. That when Christ died on the cross, God was displaying Him 
publicly as a propitiation in his blood. Now, that is very theologically technical language. But there's a wonderful simplicity to it. And everything that's been taught in Romans up to this point is the backdrop to it. Because the word propitiation has reference to satisfying someone who is very angry. To propitiate is to be or do or bring something that is of a sufficient magnitude that this person who is righteously angry with me is finally satisfied by what I've done or what I've brought. I've propitiated his wrath. Romans is taught that I have no possibility of doing that in myself, but that the Son of God came and that he did do it. And that the wrath with which the book of Romans begins has been entirely quenched It has burned itself out in the person of Jesus Christ, the sin and the guilt bearer. And when he died on the cross, it was God himself, not just the Son of God, it was God the Father demonstrating publicly for everyone to see the righteous wrath of heaven is satisfied in this. That's the meaning of the death of Christ for us that Paul is taking for granted when he writes in Romans chapter 5. And of course, the wrath of God is the most dreadful thing that you can imagine. It is more than the horrors of an invasion such as is taking place in Ukraine. It is greater and more terrible than an earthquake such as that that has killed tens of thousands of people in Syria and Turkey in this last month. It is far greater than the sick, dead feeling that you have in a serious car accident. The wrath of God falls upon the very life of a sinner and it falls upon his very best life. It falls upon his eternal life. It takes his eternal life. And when the wrath of God falls on a sinner, it cannot be reduced and it can never ever be terminated. There's no crying, no amount of tears, no promises to repent or to change. There's nothing that can free a person from it or relieve the suffering of it. It is forever the wrath of God. And Paul is going to say, without going into any explanation, he's going to say in this fifth chapter, in the ninth verse, which we did not read, it's the next verse in the passage, and I'll have you turn back to Romans 5 if you will please, he's going to say that we have been saved from that wrath. When you say, I'm saved, what you mean is you were saved from that And what we've been taught in Romans is the only way that could be done 
is through the death of a substitute. The Lord Jesus Christ. When he comes to this fifth chapter, he's taking that for granted about the death of Christ, that it satisfied the wrath of God. And folks, what he wants to do is tell us something in addition to what he's now taking for granted. And what he wants to tell us in addition is that it is his love that is demonstrated when he did that. It was a setting forth publicly of something about his wrath. Chapter 3. His wrath propitiated. But now chapter 5 he wants you to know this. Take it in its most plain literal sense. That was the magnificent, inarguable, indisputable public demonstration. There could be no other explanation than his love, his love for us. Now, in the verses that follow, or the verses that preceded that, verses 5, 6, and 7, He's making several points about that. And dear people, it's in really grasping two of these this morning that the blessing of this whole day will consist in. And you came here hoping for a blessing this morning. And we've already had many of them. But this is where the lump of the matter is. This is the meat of it. The first thing that it's easy to overlook in this passage, but that it's so critical, especially for people like ourselves, to grasp, to understand, is whose love it was being demonstrated in that death. It's a demonstration of love. Whose love? Well, we're told elsewhere in our New Testament, no question about it, no believing person should ever have any doubtfulness about this. You could actually be perceiving of the death and the demonstration of the love, you could be perceiving it wrongly. So what is said elsewhere is very, very important. We are told elsewhere, beyond any question, that when Christ satisfied the wrath of God for us, that He did it because He loves us. Paul says, for instance, in the fifth chapter of his letter to the Ephesians, that Christ loved the church and did what? And gave himself for her. 
That's Ephesians 5, verse 25. It states it. Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. And the man who wrote those words, the Apostle Paul, when he wrote to the Galatian churches, personalized this, and he put it in words like this. He said, The life that I now live, which was an entirely different life than he had been living before he met Jesus Christ as his Savior from the wrath of God. The life that I now live, Paul says, I live by faith in that person. And that is you, and that's me this morning. What explains the different kind of life that you're living today? What explains the stark contrast even from the lives of other professing Christian people that you may work with or you may go to school with over at Bob Jones University or in the academy or in the grade school. But it's really obvious you live a different kind of life. When you look at their lives, they look very much like the lives of people on television. When people look at your life, it's different. What explains the difference? The life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God. Now listen to this. Listen to the personalization of it, folks. Who loved me and gave himself for me. Now what Paul said of himself, every single Christian is to say of himself. It isn't just that he can say it, it is that he should say it. Keep yourself in the love of God. You should say it. And you ought not read those words by the Apostle Paul and think to yourself that that might not be true of you. You're a Christian, but you, could you actually say that? Well, you just test yourself out on it. What then would you say? Would God have you to say, I'm a Christian, but I can't say the Son of God loved me and the Son of God gave himself for me, but I'm a Christian? Paul could say that. Of course Paul could say it. He's the great apostle. But those words couldn't be said of me, might be able to be said of other Christians whom I know who are far more faithful than I am, but I couldn't say that of myself. Well, what would you say of yourself? You do not have, you do not have the right and you ought not think of altering those words. You ought not alter them in any way. The life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God, but the Son of God did not love me and did not give himself for me. Would you alter the verse like that? Does that sound better to you when applied to your own case? Or would you say it this way, the life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who did not love me, but he gave himself for me. Does that sound better to you? Would you consider that that would be true in your case? Of course not. 
I'm being a little facetious, folks, for the sake of making a point and underscoring the fact that if you today live your life by faith in the Son of God, you ought to take those words to yourself, the words out of the Apostle Paul, you ought to say to yourself, those are just the words for me. The Son of God loved me and gave Himself for me. Now that's indisputable. That when He gave Himself, He was doing it out of love for you. But that isn't what Romans 5 is saying. When I ask the question, folks, whose love is being demonstrated here, what we're told in Romans 5 is that when Christ gave Himself, it was demonstrating God's love. The love of God is demonstrated. And the God who is being referred to, look at the 10th verse. Would you look at verse 10, please? You'll see it there. While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, so the God being referred to in the passage is who? We were reconciled to God through the death of His Son. The God being referred to is who? It is the Father. This is so critical that we not think to ourselves and I've mentioned this several times in this series, and I want to just keep thumping on it whenever the passage we're dealing with is appropriate to keep making this point, folks. When Jesus Christ died on the cross, He did not change God's attitude towards you. He was on the cross because of God's attitude towards you. God the Father sent His Son because He loved you. This is one of the earliest teachings in the earthly ministry of Jesus Christ. If you take a harmony of the Gospels, where all four Gospels are in parallel columns, and everything is put in chronological order, you will find that one of the earliest things that Jesus taught in his earthly ministry was in the first lengthy recorded evangelistic conversation that he had one-on-one -on -one soul winner when he said for God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son John 3:16 There's hardly anything in Jesus teaching that's earlier than that you look at it for yourself that was the whole opening of that earthly ministry. And one of those men whom he reached, the Apostle John, was able then, through the direction of the Holy Spirit, to say to us many, many decades later, when that Apostle was an aged man, by this the love of God was manifested to us because God sent His only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through Him. 1 John 4, 9. And then he goes on and says this, Here in His love, if you really want to know 
and you want to have the ultimate evidence of what love is, this is love. Herein is love. Not that we loved God, but that God loved us. It's talking about God the Father. But that God loved us and sent His Son to be what Romans 3 taught. Sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sin. That is love. It is the love of God the Father. The objective evidence that you have that it is certain that God loves you is that when Christ died on the cross, it was because of the love of God the Father for you. The love of God the Son, yes. But the love of God the Father. Christ's death on the cross did not purchase the Father's love for you. That is a great misunderstanding. Christ died on the cross as the evidence of the Father's love for you. What a wonderful, wonderful thing. But do you realize, folks, and I want to move you to this now, that in this passage that we're looking at, the big point isn't anything that I've just preached. We have not yet come to the big point. The big point is, what about that death so demonstrates that love? You say, well, we're told there that the death demonstrates the love. That's true. But that's not the big point. The big point is, what about that death so demonstrates that love? And folks, what you're going to see, because we're going to read it again, is that verse 6, verse 7, and verse 8 are all occupied with one thing. It's the big point that we haven't gotten to yet. Let's read those verses again, and you see if you can see it. It'll, it's, as, it's as clear as the shining of the sun, but in our, in our being so taken with, and we ought to be so blessed by the death of Christ for us, we can overlook this, which is the big thing that he's saying about that death. Let's read the verses again. When he died, it worked like this. While we were still helpless, and at the right time in God's eternal purpose, that death, look at it, that death was for the ungodly. In verse 7, remember I said 6, 7, and 8 are all making the same big point. Look at verse 7. One will hardly die for a righteous man, but you, you know what? That does happen. Perhaps for the good man, someone would dare to die. But God demonstrates His own love toward us, not just that Christ died for us, but that He did it while we were sinners. Verse 6, for the ungodly, 
Verse 8, for sinners. Verse 10, while we were enemies. Do you need any proof that God loves you and that the act and work of Jesus Christ on the cross are the unquestionable evidence? Look at the character of the people for whom he died. It's their character that is the clinching proof that had to be love. There can't be any other explanation. That, folks, is the big point. Keep yourself in the love of God. And one of the ways of doing it is look at yourself. Just look at you. And he did it for people of your character. That's the point. He didn't die for people whose character might perhaps move him to die for them. Verse 7. We have a number of hymns in our hymn book and in most hymn books by a man who died quite early in his 30s, P.P. Bliss. The record is that Bliss died in a terrible train accident in New York trying to find and save his wife from the fires that were consuming the train cars. Man giving himself for his wife. You would expect that kind of love. We're told that when the Titanic was going down that the men were held back and that they were told women and children first in the lifeboats. You would expect that. Britain's national anthem is God save the king. Long live our noble king. God save the king. And men and women by the thousands undoubtedly have died for that country, for that nation, and they have done that believing it was warranted that their country was good enough to call for it, that their king or their queen was a worthy person. But it wasn't like that at the cross. The people for whom Christ died and the people whom God the Father loved were not righteous and they were not good. And Paul has already demonstrated that beyond all doubt. Romans 3.12, there's none righteous, not even one. Romans 3.14, there's none that doeth good, not even one. Romans 3.23, they're all sinners. They've all fallen short of the glory of God. We're told in the Scripture, take this in the most plain and literal sense, folks. Read your Bible like that dying clergyman exhorted Henry Francis Light to begin reading Paul's epistles. Read this in the most literal sense that when God the Father's love was demonstrated in the death of Christ on the cross for you, he was demonstrating that he loved you as ungodly as you were. It was a death for the ungodly. And that is the most serious indictment that could be brought against us. And the reason I say that is because the book begins with this statement. The technical beginning of that book after introduction begins this way. 
the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. Romans 1.18. What does that mean? Why is that such a serious thing? I want to show you. I want to ask you to go all the way back to the beginning with me. Would you go back with me, please? Everybody turn to this. The second chapter of the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 2. And there is a brief record here that we can only know by the revelation of God. That reading that you have in the worship guide today in the center panel, John Murray takes us back to these chapters and he says, when you ask the question of the infallibility of Scripture, you're going to have to realize that Scripture records things that there's no possibility of anyone ever knowing any other way than God just simply telling you it was that way. And if this record isn't true, then you have no possibility of knowing. So here is the record of God's Word regarding our beginning. Genesis chapter 2, verse 26. God said, there are three persons in the Godhead. You have evidently a joint Speaking here, God said, let us make man in our image and according to our likeness. And being in our image then, let, verse 26, let them rule over everything. Verse 27, I'm skipping now, God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him, Male and female, he created them. Now that's enough for us to be able to get the immensity of this matter of being a creature, listen to this, who is like God. Let us make man like ourselves. In our image, in our likeness. And being in our likeness, let them rule. And we've made them two genders, male and female. Now folks, would you look please at the world around us today and ask yourself where you see the evidences of the image of God in men and women's rule over all the earth. Where is the wisdom of God in the rule today? Where is the beauty of the order that characterizes God in heaven and all of His creation at the beginning? Where is the justice and the righteousness of the rule of someone like God? Proverbs says to us that when the righteous increase, people rejoice. But when a wicked man rules, people groan. The whole world is groaning under the rule of the wicked, under people in whom the image of God has been so defaced and marred. Now here we are 
and in the most civilized countries of the world. This is still disputed in third world countries. People without much education. People who still live in such impoverished conditions. This still in those countries is not disputed. It's in our civilized countries that it's disputed as to whether maleness and femaleness are real. Or a man ought to be able to declare himself a woman and everyone should applaud. And a woman should declare herself a man and everyone should celebrate. Or perhaps this person is both. Maybe he's one this week and then next month he's another. Or some combination is yet in the weirdness of his soul. Where is the godlikeness in our world today? You look everywhere. Look at the art. Look at how grotesque the art. How ugly the art. And it is applauded by the most civilized people as being an evidence of something of genius that it looks so gross. Look at it in the music. Look at the way men and women paint themselves and dress themselves and tattoo themselves and pierce themselves. You see the image of God? Likeness to God? Folks, there could not be a more serious indictment that you could bring against any human being than that he is no longer like God. He's ungodly. And the wrath of God abides on him. And then you stop and take into account that Paul can say that these ungodly people actually in their hearts now have an enmity against God. He is their enemy. If you don't believe that, talk to them about God. Matthew 5.18, not a single letter or stroke will pass from God's law until it's all fulfilled. Tell them about God's law. Tell them about the rule of God over the kingdom of men made in His image. See what the reaction of men and women is. Men and women who appear to be gracious and kind and erudite and concerned about community and humanity and family, but bring God into the picture and inform them in the most literal way of where they stand before God. He that believeth not the revelation that God has given about His Son, Jesus said, abides right now under the wrath of God. Inform them of their standing before God and you will see the enmity on their countenances. And folks, there's a sense in which they cannot help it. They're totally depraved. The Bible explains that as they're being totally depraved. That it is their nature to feel that way. Jesus said it. It is because they are the way they are that they love the darkness rather than the light that you're bringing to them. They will flee the light that you're bringing to them. It is their enmity against God. When you take these things into account, 
There's no explanation. There's no explanation for the cross of Christ at all apart from love. How else could you explain dying for these enemies totally unlike you? They have, uh, they have accepted the bait. You will be like God. You can be more like God by disobeying God. You can be the master of your own fate. You can go your own way. They've swallowed it. How do you explain God taking the son of his love and raising the knife that he forbid Abraham to use on his own son? Raising it and shedding the blood of his son. For sinners like that, how do you explain that any other way than love for those people? There is no other explanation. And dear folks, you may have come into this church this morning, you may have risen today with some doubtfulness in your mind about God's love for you. And your doubtfulness or your vacillation may be due to your earthly circumstances that were mentioned in this passage, tribulation. That word refers to great pressure. And you felt that way all this last week, every day. Your circumstances, your limited financial resources, the relationship situations in your families that you can't fix. Why can't you fix them? Because none of you are living up to being in the image of God. You're all falling short of His glory. Every one of you. Myself. It's the explanation for all the problems. God's will is not being done on earth the way it is in heaven. There are no problems in heaven. So day by day you find yourself doubting and wondering and vacillating, earthly circumstances pressuring you. Or your own sinfulness. Well, to reassure yourself and keep yourself in the love of God, instead of looking at yourself and thinking, this is why God can't love me, what Romans 5 is teaching is you ought to look at yourself and say, you know what? You are that way, and the fact that you are that way is what ought to prove to you that God really loves you. Because He sent His Son to die even though you're that way. He sent His Son to satisfy His own wrath against you. Folks, to keep yourself in the love of God, look a little more closely at yourself at what a wretch you are, what a wicked wretch you are. So what's the explanation for the death for you? God really loves you. It's beyond all dispute. And you ought not today doubt that. You ought not leave this building today in any question about that. You ought to give glory to God by receiving it and embracing it and in a sense rejoicing in yourself that 
seeing that in yourself just underscores. I mean, the sinfulness and the enmity and the ungodliness. When you think of that, draw a line under the love of God. I'm ungodly. Draw another line under the love of God. I'm so sinful. Draw another line under the love of God. Just keep highlighting it the way God would have you to do. And when you sing, when I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, think of those words. See from his head, his hands, his feet, sorrow and love flow mingled down. And you ask yourself the question, did air, did such sorrow and love ever meet? Impossible. The sorrow of the sin bearer, the love of God, did such love and sorrow ever meet? Impossible. And let your surveying the cross of Jesus Christ persuade you beyond all question, give you certainty today, God loves me. Christ loves me and gave himself for me. Loving Heavenly Father, we praise you today for this that you have taught us, but that we have so little comprehension of. We feel ourselves almost like beasts without understanding. The height, the depth, the breadth, the length of your love, which are unknowable. And we pray as the Apostle Paul did, that we might come more and more to know it. Find all of our security in it. Lord, we pray today for that person here in our assembly this morning who is the most insecure, fearful, trembling, miserable, agonizing. Oh, gracious Lord, overwhelm the soul of that beloved saint with an effusion from your Holy Spirit of the impression of your love for him, for her. And we ask this that you might be glorified today by that person and gracious Lord by all of us We ask in Christ's precious name, amen.